Now, before we dig into our study, I just got to take a moment and say thank you so much for how God used you uh, last week, during Easter week. It was just a tremendous time. Thank you to those of you that invited people, that attended, that prayed, that gave, that served, that promoted, uh, that advertised. I just really, God used you in just such an amazing way. We believe that over Easter week, we had more than 10,000 people. We had a close to 200 decisions for Christ, including 80 people following Jesus in baptism. And, you know, this week as I was, uh, yeah, that is just as good as it gets. As I was sitting there, we sent letters out to those that we had addresses for that had made decisions for Christ. And as I sat there sending out those letters of encouragement and ways they can grow in their walk with the Lord, uh, I just noticed that it was from all over Southern California. I mean, it was just amazing, the geographical breadth. You know, the mayor at the 9 o'clock service at Fairplex said that our church is the center of Pomona. He said not just geographically and physically, but spiritually and in so, so many other ways as well. He called our church, the, the heart, the center of Pomona. And, uh, but really, it's true for all of Southern California because I just saw so many decisions for Christ from a variety of geographical locations all over uh, Southern California. And I just praise God for how he used you. Now, the numbers, what's way more important than the numbers is the stories behind each of those numbers. And we have heard some unbelievable stories. Let me just share one of them with you. This was on Facebook. A young lady from our church writes, today at church, and she was at one of the services at the Fairplex, I was sitting behind a family of four, mom, dad, and a little boy and girl, around the ages of six and seven. When the pastor spoke of Jesus' sacrifice and that anyone can choose to spend eternity with him, the daughter turned in utter shock to her mom and said, is that true? And her mother, equally as affected, whispered back, I guess so. At the end of the service, all four of them went to the front and were baptized together. Tears have been flowing all day. Thank you so much, Jesus, for what you did for me and allowing me to witness this story. You are love, hashtag, he is risen. And so it's the stories behind each one of those numbers. That's what we particularly praise God for. Now, on a lighter note, let me just show you some of the uh, pictures I got a kick out of uh, from the weekend. You know, we shared the Fairplex with America's Got Talent extreme version. And so they did not leave these up for Sunday, but this is what was there the day before. Look at those two buses, end to end, right behind where the choir uh, sang there. Um, but I say next year we get buses just like that, and right when Pastor Jay gets up and says, he is risen, he is risen indeed, we blow up the buses. I think that would be so, so cool. And then Chris Chacon, Pastor Tomiko's husband, Chris, he sent me this one. Now, this is also from the America's Got Talent Extreme version. Put the next picture up there. He said, uh, this year, let's go big with baptisms. That's what we're doing. Go big or go home, you know. And so that is our baptistry for the capacity of people we hope to see uh, baptized next time. Now, this next one is my favorite, and we'll hold it for a second. I need to set it up. Uh, Our family, we live here in Promona on Lincoln Park. And a funny thing, and and you'll identify with this if you live in Lincoln Park area in Pomona, is there's a a group of about a dozen uh, peacocks that just wander our neighborhood. They have for years and years. And nobody owns them, to my knowledge. They just wander around picking up food where they can. And, and it's just a feature of Lincoln Park, these peacocks that just wander the neighborhood. And they're absolutely gorgeous. The coloring on them, I just praise God 
uh, for his creativity whenever I see the beautiful coloring on those peacocks. And, and you know how Yellowstone, the cars have to stop and the buffalo go across? There are peacock stops uh, there in Lincoln Park, and you have to just stop your car while a whole a herd or whatever you call a flock of peacocks uh, go, go, go across. But here's the problem. I've never been able to get one to spread its plume. And ever since I was a kid, it's been such a frustrating, frustrating thing. I've been able to get the peacock to spread its poop. And when I grew up in Virginia, we had all kinds of rumors as to what you had to do to get them to spread it out. One of them, it's just crazy, I don't even know where it came from, is that if you counted to 10 in French... That, that would, they would open their plume. That was one of the ones I remember as a kid. It never worked, but, you know, we try, try them all. Well, we finally found something that will get a peacock to spread its plume. And here it is. A Easter at the Fairplex lawn sign. That will do it. Now, if that's not a sign from heaven of God's blessing, I, I don't know what is. And somebody sent me that picture, and there it is with the Easter. See the bumper sticker on the car? and It's the combination of the bumper sticker on the car and the yard sign, and he lets it out there. So I thought that was, that was just great. Let's watch this together. Isn't that as good as it gets? I'm telling you, very, very exciting. Uh, those aerial shots are thanks to Eric Waggy had that little drone. How many of you saw that drone of you at the Fairplex? Some people got nervous, thought the NSA was spying on our event as what was going on there. But I uh, really appreciate Eric Waggy's uh, work on that. And you know, just a personal note. 
um, that young guy, Frank, in the, in the wheelchair, we were th- so thrilled by that. We have a saying in our family, dad preaches oikos, but my daughter, Rebecca, is the one that actually lives it. And she's the one that gets friends from school. And Frank, had, he sits right on the front row of the hub at Claremont every Sunday night. And uh, last Sunday night, a week ago, Pastor Eric Holmstrom, our high school pastor, had preached uh, for Palm Sunday. And Eric, uh, and uh, led afterwards, led Frank to Christ. And Frank asked if he could be baptized the next Sunday. And so that was an absolute thrill uh, for our family to see him follow Jesus in that way. Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. And also uh, for those, our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also the hangar in Montana, we are so glad that you are joining us for today's study as well. And I am so excited about this series. I can't remember the last time I was this excited about a series called The Hope Quotient, because I believe that the Bible has taught for centuries or millennia, uh, and now contemporary research is confirming what God's Word has had all the time, that the key to life is your hope quotient. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, and now these three remain, let's say them out loud, faith, hope, and love. Now, this is what's interesting. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard a ton of messages on love. Now, there's a reason for that, because Paul goes on to say, and the greatest of these is love. But you also have heard a great number of messages on faith. But how many do we hear on hope? It's kind of the forgotten of these three great things in the Christian life. It's kind of like the middle child stuck in the middle that gets neglected by the first one and the, and the last one. And so why is it that we have so many Christians that may have great faith, but they're discouraged because they don't have hope? Or they might have great love, but they're discouraged because they don't have hope. And we're going to rectify that. It's kind of funny how tonight we're going to fill in that gap of not talking about our work enough. And this morning we're going to fill in that gap by talking about hope. Uh, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ray Johnson writes, unlike IQ and EQ, IQ, intelligent quotient, and we certainly know that that's an advantage in life, but remember a number of years back, there was this blockbuster New York Times bestseller book on emotional quotient, your EQ. And the writer and the researcher made the argument that actually what will contribute to your success in the workplace and other places uh, throughout your life more than your IQ is your EQ, your ability to get along with other people, to play well with others in the sandbox. That will actually get you farther in life than your IQ. But there's something that's even more important than IQ and EQ. And the good news is you can't do much to change your IQ or your EQ, but you can increase your HQ, your hope quotient. Unlike IQ and EQ, which are largely inherited, your degree of hope, your hope quotient, or HQ, can be developed to any level. Howard Hendricks writes, discouragement is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Hope and confidence create 11 major differences. You'll be more successful, feel more satisfied, be more compassionate towards others, be more willing to help people in need. Be physically healthier, have more satisfying relationships, be more likely to assume leadership, hold to tighter moral and ethical standards, be more productive, be less affected by stress, and be more likely to see God as loving, caring, and forgiving. Uh, David writes, be strong and take heart, all you who 
hope in the Lord. Charles L. Allen writes, when you say a situation or a person is hopeless, you are slamming the door in the face of God. Now there's this thing that counselors call the 10% solution, which is counselors, personal counselors, or marriage counselors, they will say that their goal is to just get a 10% improvement in that marriage or a 10% improvement in whatever area it is that we're struggling with in life. You'll say, well, what good is that? Because you've still got the problem of the other 90%. But here's what they find. If you can just get five, I've even heard it as low as three or 5%, but if you can get three or five or 10% of change, what happens? You see some success in your life, and that causes you to hope that maybe things can get better. I mean, uh, you, you finally get the, the guy in the relationship to... Uh, make his bed and to do the dishes once or twice a week. Now you say, well, what good is that? That's not going to change their marriage. Yes, but it gives her hope of a better time in the future. Or if you can get her to change just a couple of critical words into complimentary, encouraging words during the course of the week, you say, well, what good is that? Well, it gives him hope. It gives them hope that their marriage can be better. And, uh, you know, I, I love all the teachers within our church family. We have a lot of teachers in our church and what a strategic role they have. Or even those like Pomona Youth Club, PYC, our after-school tutoring that we have here. Or those in our youth or children's ministries or basketball camp counselors or any number of people that work with the youth. Uh, uh, my wife, Nukova, in the, in the school that works with youth here on our, our campus. And, and I love to see what they do because research has shown that if a person, even if they're in a hopeless situation in their childhood or in their youth, if they have just one person that believes in them, just one teacher, one adult. You know, Pastor Eric, our high school pastor, has been challenging us ever since he came to just get to know the name of one or two high schoolers and then to call them out by name when you see them here at church and ask them, how's school going? How's that situation doing in your classroom? How, how, how's your sports team doing? And they have found that if there's just one caring adult in their lives, even though a youth or a child might be in a hopeless situation, it gives them hope, and it makes all the difference. It just gives them hope of something better in the future. Hope liberates. It releases you from your past it motivates, it helps you to bounce back. Uh, Proverbs 24, verse 16, I love this verse. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. I personally appreciate that because on Easter, remember I told the story about tripping over the same sprinkler head. Not once, but twice. Actually, it's been seven times. That's not true. I, I, I tripped over a couple of times. And a funny story, maybe you heard it if you were at the 11 o'clock service, but uh, the mayor was there on the front row at the 9 o'clock service out there. And you know how you tell a story, and you tell it one way, and I'm always, like, it can come off totally different to somebody sitting in the audience. And I'm just telling that story, and I'm just telling it to show what a klutz I am and just tell, like a self-deprecating, humorous story. The mayor, on the other hand, was horrified. All he saw was lawsuits. That's all he saw. Uh, you know, I'm talking about breaking my rib, you know, from tripping over a sprinkler head. He was terrified, and he runs right over to me afterwards and says, where's that sprinkler head? And uh, do you have a cone at the church that you can put over it? I'll have my guys there Monday morning to fix it. I said, oh, Mr. Mayor, no, 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 no. I no way was thinking about a lawsuit. He says, I'm not thinking about you, but the lawsuit happy person who might trip over it next. That's who I'm afraid of. And uh, so he saw that very differently. For though the righteous fall seven times, they'll rise again. You see that with Joseph in the Bible and David. In a minute, we're going to look at Elijah. 
Nehemiah. John Mark, remember a few weeks ago in our Acts series, we talked about how when Barnabas and Paul went on their first missionary journey that John Mark bailed on them. He got discouraged and he went back home. He fell. And yet by the end of his life, he was a tremendously valuable uh, follower of Christ because he got back up on his feet again. Uh, Easter week, remember on Good Friday, Peter denies Jesus, but then he becomes the leader of the greatest movement in world history. Uh, How about Jesus, the best example of all? Though a righteous man may fall, be killed on the cross, buried, he will rise again. And the same was true for Jesus, and it's true for you as well. Hope initiates. It sets you free to dream. It activates. Hope is the fuel that makes the world a better place. Now, what hope is not? It's not some unreliable sensation. Paul writes in Romans 5, we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Hope is not wishful thinking or blind optimism, and it is not an unnecessary luxury. It is absolutely essential in our lives. Next page of your study outline. Because hope is the antidote to the toxin of discouragement, which precedes destruction. I love this quote right here. Uh, Edwin Lewis Cole, you don't drown by falling in the water, you drown by staying there. Now, there's a deep thought, isn't it? You know, aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, Pastor Glenn is so deep. He is so deep, man. You don't drown by falling in the water. You drown by staying there. Um, Discouragement is a universal disease. We all get it. It's a repeating disease. You'll catch it more than once. It's a contagious disease. You can catch it from discouraging people. Does anybody want to say amen to that? And as we're going to see in a moment, you need to limit your exposure, if you can, if it's within your power, to those people that discourage you. Discouragement is always circumstantial, has a cause, either circumstances or other people, but mainly it comes from me. Mainly I'm the source of most of my discouragement. Look now at Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. You all know this is one of my favorite passages to preach on because it's so very practical. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has a dream day as a pastor, as a preacher. Uh, He he preaches a sermon to Israel against the thousand prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel, and God validates his sermon by fire coming down from heaven. Now, that's a sermon ending right there. You know, that's every pastor's dream, that you'd preach a sermon, at the end of it, fire comes down from heaven. Yeah, thus saith the word of the Lord, you know, right there. That's the way to end a sermon. Now, you would think that would make him encouraged for a while. Mark Twain says, a good word of encouragement will last me for a month. I can go a month on just a good, solid word of encouragement. Well, you would think fire coming down from heaven to vindicate or to validate your sermon, that'd be worth a year or so. It only lasts 24 hours. One day later, he completely loses it because of one critical person in his life. Now, her name was Jezebel. She was queen. She did threaten to kill him. But one person caused him to lose all that encouragement from God. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. 
When we get discouraged, we tend to isolate from other people. We need to run towards God rather than away from God. We need to run toward church rather than away from church. We need to connect with other Christians rather than isolate ourselves from other Christ followers. But he leaves his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Who said he needed to be? Who said you needed to be better than your ancestors? Who said that, that, that you needed uh, to be superhuman and to fix all the problems in, in your family or in your world? And yet we get discouraged because we can't do that. And God just asks us to do a few simple things in obedience to him and let him take on the, the, the bigger picture. But he tried to, he was hoping that all of Israel would turn to God simply because of his one sermon, even if it was punctuated by fire at the end. He thought that would do it, and it didn't do it. And he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. And God says, that's okay. Just do in your generation what I call you to do. Discouragement is deadly. It can kill. Galatians 6, Paul writes, you will harvest what you plant. Vincent van Gogh wrote, great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. And that's what we're going to do the next seven weeks. Next seven weeks, I'm going to try to build a hope quotient into our lives. Uh, Today, with the few minutes we have left, we're going to talk about recharging your batteries Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to talk about raising your expectations. Then refocus on the future. Play to your strengths. We're going to take a break from Mother's Day, and I'll do more specifically Mother's Day message on Mother's Day. But then refuse to go it alone. Replace burnout with balance and play great defense. And we need this so much. And we need hope not only for ourselves, but we need it to share with the people around us in our culture and within our nation. You know, I heard a a pastor say this past week that we have lost something every decade of the last seven decades. We as a nation have lost something each decade. In the 1950s, Americans lost their innocence. In the 1960s, we lost our authority. Uh, How many of you um, remember the 60s? Anybody? How many remember the 60s? How many of you were there? You just don't remember it, okay? Some in that category. And, and, And if you remember the 60s, um, do you remember the saying of the 60s? I bet you you can almost finish this. They won't be able to at 11-11 so much, but I bet you many of you can here. Okay, don't trust anyone over 30. There you go. Don't trust anyone over 30. And we lost our sense of authority. In the 1970s, we lost love. It was called the me generation. We became more self-centered as people. One social scientist said, we were starving for love, but we settled for sex. We were starving for love, but we settled for sex. In the 1980s, we lost our values. The 80s was really summarized by uh, the Hollywood movie Wall Street, where Michael Douglas, as the lead character, Gordon Gecko, said that famous line, greed is good. And we lost our values. You know, the church changed in the 80s as well. It stole from us the value of generosity. You know, uh, the percentage of Christians who tithed dropped precipitously in the 1980s. Before the 1980s, uh, Christians, if they were committed to the cause of Christ, would be shocked that somebody would say they're committed to the cause of Christ and wouldn't tithe in in their giving. But now it's become more commonplace. Um, 
we lost, they stole from us our value of generosity. We lost our values. In the 1990s, we lost our faith in the protection of institutions. It started with the Oklahoma City bombing and then Columbine, where parents were even afraid to send their kids to school because they feared for their safety. We lost our faith. And then in the year 2000, that 10 years, from 2000 to 2010, we lost our security. Remember how it started, Y2K? Do you remember Y2K? And uh, people were stockpiling food. Kimberly and I never stockpiled food because we figured we had six kids in a minivan and we could survive on the French fries that were just stuck into the, um, into the seat coverings there. So we thought we would be okay. But then, of course, uh, way more serious than Y2K uh, is 9-11. And then at the end of the decade, the economy crashed, and so we lost our sense of security as a nation. Now we're in a new decade, and it's only halfway through it, but sociologists now say the thing we have lost is our hope. Lost our hope. Because we lost our innocence, our authority, our love, our values, our faith, and our security. Now we've lost hope. Do you know, for the first time in American history, teenagers, when polled, do not believe that their future is going to be better than that of their parents. It's never happened in American history. Throughout American history, people always thought their generation was going to have it better or, or in, uh, than the previous generation. For the first time in American history, our teenagers do not believe that their future is going to be better than that of their parents. But I believe the next decade is our decade as followers of Christ because we offer the thing our nation and culture most needs. We offer hope. And I believe this is our time. This is our moment when we offer the very thing that our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues at work and our fellow students most need. We offer hope. So number one, we want to recharge our batteries. Isaiah says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Gail MacDonald said, Untended fires soon become nothing more than a pile of ashes. And here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. And we think about this occasionally, but we don't think about it uh, with a, a deeper understanding, with, uh, with a real studying of it. This is a question that we really need to take seriously and, and think in a more systematic way and, and, and think deeply on this. What drains me and what fuels me? I mean, we think about occasionally, oh, that person drains me or that situation fuels me. But we don't think about it like really take the time. What in life drains me and what fuels me? And so the key is to keep to a minimum those things that drain your hope and maximize the things that fuel your hope. Five passion killers. Passion killer number one is unhealthy people. Passion killer number two is unkind critics. Passion killer number three is an unbalanced schedule. I love this quote. If you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. (laughs) Passion killer number four is unnecessary guilt. You know what? You've got that thing in your life that you have just got to release. Jesus died on the cross for that regret. You, You do not need, you need to release that guilt he, he has forgiven that thing. Now forgive yourself. If anybody had a reason to hold on to that, it would be Paul, 
who, who killed Christians, who persecuted the church. But even Paul was able to say, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Passion killer number five is underestimating the impact of exposure. I think we underestimate the power of what we allow into our minds. My son Noah, we have a long drive to his school uh, every morning, and so I drive him just about every morning uh, uh, to school in Pasadena. And so we have a lot of time in the car, and I've noticed him humming whatever music I play in the car, on the radio, or on, on, on other means. Uh, and I notice him humming. So, so, what do you, so what do you think I play on the radio in my car? It's nothing but Christian music and sermons. I mean, that poor kid hears more sermons than anybody, you know. And, and, and it, I, I make sure that what I'm playing in his presence is wholesome because I know he's absorbing it. And I don't want to underestimate the impact of that exposure. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why do people lose hope in our culture? Because we're being exposed to so much garbage. And if we just take it in all the time, is it any wonder that we get discouraged, we get depressed, we lose our hope, whereas the opposite is also true. If we fuel it, With those things that Paul talks about there, our hope quotient will increase. We need to develop your supply lines. Minimize that which is a passion killer and maximize your supply lines. How many times in history has an army lost the war or the battle because they ran ahead of their supply lines? And many times we get in trouble in life because we run ahead of our supply lines. How many times have you known a very gifted person that crashed and burned either emotionally or, or spiritually or physically because they didn't protect their, the fuel coming in their supply lines. Um, when I was a kid growing up in the Cold War, uh, you may remember if you grew up during that era, the coolest jet was the U-2. It was a spy plane And it was such a cool thing. It went 13 miles up into the air. It was so close to the edge of space that they they tell me that if you're in a U-2, if you're a pilot, you can see the curvature of the earth. That's how high it would go. And so what it would do is we'd send these planes over the Soviet Union. And all they could do is see it on their radar, but they didn't have any missiles that could reach it. And so we could just at will snap any pictures we want to and just spy on them all that we wanted to and just do it with impunity. Uh, probably the most famous U-2 pilot was a guy by the name of Francis Gary Powers. And unbeknownst to America, in early spring of 1960, the Soviet Union finally developed a surface-to-air missile that could reach a U-2. And so on May 1st, 1960, uh, Francis Powers took off from Peshawar, base in Peshawar, uh, Pakistan, flew over the Soviet Union, and at 70,000 feet high, they shot him down with this surface-to-air missile. He survived the crash. They put him in, uh, sentenced him to 10 years of hard labor in a Soviet concentration camp. He got out in two because they swapped him for a grand grand KGB, grand marshal of spying, and so they made the trade uh, for Francis Powers. He spent his next number of years as a test pilot for Lockheed, testing the most dangerous new planes that they could create. He was the test pilot for them. And he finished his career here in Los Angeles as a helicopter traffic reporter. 
And this is the old days where the guy that flew the helicopter would also report on the traffic rather than having a separate person report on the traffic. Right here in Los Angeles, maybe some of you remember him as the helicopter traffic reporter for an L.A. TV station. But one day his helicopter crashed and he died. And you know why it crashed? It ran out of gas. Now think about this. This guy flew the U-2. He gets shot down over the Soviet Union at 13 miles high. He's thrown into a Soviet concentration camp. He is a test pilot for the most dangerous planes uh, that the Americans could produce. And he dies because his helicopter runs out of gas. And boy, that's people that I know, that you know. They may be very gifted, have great abilities, but if you outrun your supply line, you get yourself in trouble, and you can crash emotionally, spiritually, or physically if you don't protect that. Supply line number one is to invest in your own growth. They say the most important thing a leader of an organization or of your family, if you're a parent or of a church, is the most important thing a leader can do is keep the leader encouraged. If you're a parent, the most important thing you can do as you lead your family is keep you as the leader, keep encouraged. If you're encouraged, your family will be encouraged. If you're a leader in business or of a team in business or you're in management, most important thing you can do is keep yourself encouraged because then those that you manage will be encouraged. And if you're a leader in a church, most important thing is to keep the leader encouraged. It says that Jesus, very early in the morning, Mark writes, while it was still dark, he got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5 says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Supply line number two is understand the power of worship. Now, you understand that because you've carved out some time on a gorgeous Sunday to be here to worship God. And there's tremendous value in that. A worship renews your strength. It reconnects you with God. It restores your perspective. It rebuilds your confidence. Uh, Page 3. You were petrified, weren't you, when you came in this morning and saw that it was a three-pager on the outline? Oh, no, we're in trouble now. He's got a three-pager going. Uh, Worship restores your joy. It releases your anxieties. It rekindles your hope. There's tremendous value in worship and in the study of God's Word. It's the way you protect your supply line is by your supply line to God's Word and your supply line Uh, to worship. But you know why I think we're losing so much hope? Um, Years ago, if you were a committed follower of Christ, you you would be at church every Sunday. I mean, I'm talking if, unless you were severely sick or something really major came up, you, you just wouldn't miss. And so the average committed follower of Christ was kind of in worship every week without fail. Do you know what they find now? Is now the average committed person, committed to their church, committed to the cause of Christ, attends church one Sunday out of three. It's one of the reasons Easter is so big. There's a lot of visitors, but part of it is we all just show up on the same day, okay? And then there's 10,000 of us when we all show up on the same day. Now, a lot of that is visitors as well, I know. But think what an effect that has on our hope quotient. If worship does all those things I just talked about, think about if we only get that once or twice a month rather than on a regular weekly basis. Think how that affects your children. With all the pressures on your children that are going on right now, uh, all the negative messages that are out there, 
think about with your children, if only like once a month, maybe twice a month, they're, they're getting uh, that, that input. Think of, think of how they're missing out on that way to encourage their hope quotient. Uh, they came up with a, in their research with a number of reasons why this has happened in America. Number one was greater affluence. We're just wealthier, we're more well-off, and so we just have more options uh, rather than uh, being in church. A higher focus on kids' activities, more travel, the cultural disappearance of guilt, and the failure to see a direct benefit. And maybe we don't see it immediately, but over time, whether we are regular in the study of God's word and worship or not, has a toll on us on every area of our Christian lives, but particularly in our hope quotient. A number of years back, I told you that um, one of my best friends was John Hanford. We were seminary roommates. He was the best man in Kimberly at my wedding. And uh, he was an ambassador under President Bush. He was a United States ambassador of religious freedom. And so he calls me up a number of years back. He says, Glenn, how would you like to meet President Bush in the Oval Office? I said, absolutely. That'd be really cool. He says, well, here's what you do. On this date, I, I got a hotel there in Washington, D.C. He says, you got to be there right on time. I had to have a whole background check and answer all these questions. And he says, look, you gotta, you got to be there right on time because there's just a certain time when you go in uh, to the Oval Office. And if you're not there, you just don't make it. So don't be late. I said, absolutely not. So I you know, called down, called down the hotel lobby and said, look, give me a wake-up call. It's very important that you give me that wake-up call at this particular time time. Well, I wake up all of a sudden the next morning, the hotel phone rings and it's my friend, John. He says, Glenn, where are you? And I said, what? He says, he says, we're there at the gate. We're ready to go in. Where are you? I said, oh my goodness. I said, they didn't call me for the wake up call. I said, I can be there in 15 minutes. He says, no. He says, I'm sorry, but uh, this is, this, we're going in right now. I said, I can be there in five minutes. He says, no, I'm sorry. We're going in now. I'm so sorry, but you missed it hung up the phone. I just sat there. Oh, my goodness. Now, that story is not true. That totally made that thing up. Total lie. Didn't happen. But I tell you what does happen. Millions of American Christ followers every Sunday do exactly the same thing. And they're not missing the President of the United States, but missing the chance to meet with the creator of the universe. And we're tired, or we sleep through it and charge our cell phone, and so the alarm doesn't go off on it, or family comes over, or something comes up. The kids spill something on them on the way out the door. I don't know. But, but, but we miss that opportunity, and it's way bigger a deal than missing a meeting with, with the president. So let me just encourage you. Try to be here the next seven weeks to see if it doesn't increase your hope quotient. The next seven Sundays, just see if for seven Sundays you can be here to increase your hope quotient over um, the next seven weeks. Uh, supply line number three, unleash the Bible into your life. Not just on Sundays, but but every day of the week. Do you need a Bible reading program? If you go to the resource center out in the lobby, we got a Bible reading program. I'd encourage you, if you've never ever done this before, start with the New Testament. And you don't have to start at the beginning. Just pick it up with where it says for this date, for 
um, April 12th, to, you know, just look up April 12th, and my guess, it's probably somewhere in like the Gospel of John. I should have checked it before, but you'll get part of the life of Jesus and then move into the book of Acts and then move into the uh, epistles. And, and just every day, set aside five or ten minutes to unleash the Bible into your life and protect that particular supply line. Supply line number four, refuse to go it alone. And if you've never done Rooted, Rooted is a great, like Tomiko said, just about everybody goes through Rooted will say, oh my goodness, I felt disconnected from others before Rooted, but now uh, it helps with all four of the supply lines. Refusing to go it alone, the Bible unleashed in your life, uh, having an, uh, talk about an intentional way to build into your hope quotient, and then worship, it, it protects your supply line, builds your supply line in all of those areas. It may be the Sunday after Easter, but he is still risen. And that gives, and that gives us hope. Uh, let's stand together for the benediction. And if you'd like prayer for anything, talk about a way to increase your hope quotient. Our prayer team, our prayer partners are in the prayer room right over here. And they would just love to pray with you. If that would increase your encouragement or your hope in any way, they'd love to pray for you. Uh, For our benediction, I want to do the verse we started with from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great, great day.